Hello and welcome to the Europe Alex podcast, episode number two. I'm Ewan Healy, and in this episode, we'll have no choice but to talk about last Thursday's UK parliamentary election. Europe Alex deputy editor in chief Matthew Nicholson will be with us discussing everything and anything UK election wise. With me, of course, is Europe Alex's very own angel, Gabriel. Ta da! Hi, Hi, everyone. How are you? And how are you? A bit of yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. There was a bit of light Christmas humour for you at yes, the beginning of the episode there. Because it. it is, of course, December and it's nearly Christmas. But, of course, believe it or not, it wasn't just the UK general election that took place uh, across Europe. I know. There, there's some other stuff that we're going to talk about. So before we speak to Matthew, I reckon we'll just go through a few things that we've noticed from the news recently. Yes, uh, got anything you want to talk about, Gabriel? Yes, yeah, so first off, we had the legislative election in San Marino which I would say is greatly underreported. So for the first time following a referendum in June of this year, they voted to change the electoral law in San Marino, and the people went to the polls to elect a 60-seat grand general council. And now, if the two larger parties aren't able to negotiate a government, there'll be a runoff election for the first time. But we'll discuss all of this later in this episode in our special interview with a very knowledgeable guest. So stay tuned to hear more about everyone's favourite enclaved microstate. Mm, it is my favourite enclave microstate, that's for sure. Yeah. Going east, there's also been, in the end of November, which feels like an absolute age ago, there was a presidential election in Romania, and the centre-right Klaus Johannes was re-elected as president of Romania after defeating the former leader of the centre-left Social Democratic Party, Viorica Dancila, in the second round of the election. He received 66% of the vote, up from 37% in the first round. President Johannes was endorsed by the National Liberal Party, which belongs to the centre-right EPP in the European Parliament. And his re-election was expected, especially after, in 2019, European election results of the Social Democratic Party lose a big portion of its support and after the fall of Dunsila's government earlier in October. On a sort of fun note, the election saw a, a record high turnout for the Romanian diaspora uh, living elsewhere. I know, very exciting, with almost a million uh, Romanians living outside of Romania voting in the election up from 380,000 in 2014. So that's tripled. It's yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So Croatia is prepping for a presidential election. Uh, so they're in full pre-election mood at the moment with their president, Grabar Kitarovic, running for re-election in the December 22nd election. So it's coming up real soon. So Grabar Kiratovic is running as an independent, but has uh, the support of the ruling centre-right party, HDC, belongs to the EPP group uh, in the EU parliament, as well as from other right-wing and centre-right parties in Croatia. Contenders include the centre-left candidate Zoran Milanovic, who's the former PM of Croatia and belongs to the SDP, so the Social Democratic Party of Croatia. There's also Miroslav Skoro, who's a nationalist conservative. He's also, funnily enough, a musician and a former MP of the Croatian parliament. Uh, but he is running as an independent. There's also Mislav Kolakusic, who's running. He's a former judge and a former MEP. He's also running as an independent there. So, of course, we will be covering the election, offering live coverage and all the polls sitting up to it. So please stay posted on all of our platforms. Yeah, and so just moving a little bit away from directly elections, talking about some updates from Finland, where Finland has had its 76th government 
formed just this month and it drew a massive amount of international attention for good reason, especially from a sort of feminist standpoint. So following the resignation of the former Prime Minister Antti Rinner, the centre-left Sanna Marin became the leader of the Social Democratic Party and formed a new government with the support of the Liberal Centre Party, the Finnish Green League, the Left Alliance and the Liberal Swedish People's Party. So a lot of this uh, elements of this new government are really interesting. But what is particularly interesting is that all five of these parties in the government agreement are led by women and four of them are younger than 35 years old. Uh, and of the 19 ministers appointed to lead ministries in the new Finnish government, 12 of them are female, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, it was something that you really sort of unthinkable uh, 10 or 15 years ago and particularly exciting because Marin is now the world's youngest head of government taking over from Alexei Honcharuk of Ukraine, beating him by a little bit over a year. Thanks, Ewan. Great news. Other great news is in Greece. Uh, for everyone that loves electoral law, for Greeks living abroad. So the center-right New Democracy government, together with all the other parliamentary parties actually, except Mera 25, who's the party of Yanis Varoufakis, they passed a new electoral law that mainly enables Greek living abroad to be able to vote without traveling back to Greece physically. So it sets some restrictions on who can register to vote. So it excludes people that haven't lived at least two of the last 35 years in Greece or haven't recently filed taxes there. But it still got approved 288 out of 300 MPs. And Mera 25, uh, which I said is the only party that voted against the reform, they disagreed with the restrictions actually and this, the link between taxes and voting rights. So they wanted it to go even further, it seems like. But still an overwhelming support for this reform. And yeah, thankfully, Greeks living abroad will not be able to participate. I'm so glad that you trailed that with all of the people who are just interested in electoral law, because I'm pretty sure that's everyone who listens to this podcast. I don't well, know I, hope, listening. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a bit further afield, just to finish off, all the way in Oceania, we've got the place the island of Bougainville had an independence referendum. Bougainville is an autonomous region of Papua New Guinea and an island that makes up part of Papua New Guinea, north of Australia, a long way away from Europe. Now, this was a non-binding referendum on independence versus greater autonomy. And 98.31% of the population of Bougainville voted for independence over the autonomy option. The country has a population of around 235,000, meaning that if it became independent, it would be the 174th largest in the world, roughly just behind Barbados. Um, it's worth noting that obviously it is a non-binding referendum, and so the ball is, is very much in the Papua New Guinea central government's court as to what happens next. But one to keep an eye on, and a good little story from the other side of the world. Well, you learn something new every day. Thanks, Ewan. <laughs> And now, I guess, we have to move on to the UK election. And we're glad to have today our Deputy Editor-in-Chief and team member responsible for the UK and Ireland, Matthew Nicholson. Hello. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I, I'm, I'm very good. Thanks. So I guess before we start our discussion, it might be worth going over the actual percentages and seat results of the election on Thursday. So the National Conservative Conservative Party got 43.6% of the vote and 365 seats. That was up just by 1.2% of the vote share, but gave them 47 more seats than after the 2017 election and a hefty majority as a result as well. The centre-left Labour Party, which is the major opposition party in the UK, got 32.2%, which gave them 203 seats. 
that was a decline of 7.8 percentage points in the vote share and minus 59 seats, which is a huge defeat for them. The Liberal Democrats had a weird night where they saw a 4.2% increase in vote share to 11.5, but lost one seat and now have 11. The progressive regionalist and pro-Scottish independence, Scottish Nationalist Party, which belongs to the Greens in the EU Parliament, they got 3.9% of the overall UK vote share, but 48 seats. So while they just gained uh, 0.8 percentage points, that gave them 13 more seats overall in Parliament. So they've definitely been strengthened as well after this election campaign. The result of the election was really quite clear, with Boris Johnson's second government going to Westminster this week with a real hefty majority. Does that sum it up well, Matthew? Yeah, I think so. And just listening to those figures, I'm just reminded again, you're really seeing how first past the post, the electoral system creates these really weird results in the Conservatives, you know, on a minor gain, they're seeing these massive seat increases, whereas the Liberal Democrats, who saw the, the largest overall gain of any party in, in this election, they actually lost a seat just because of the way that the numbers worked out in the distribution of the vote across the country. Yes. So on that on that point, talking about the results of the polls, I saw it be in a, a hotly contested polling field uh, to who could have the most accurate polling in the election. And we, we chatted to Matt Singh last week, and you can still catch that episode on your preferred podcast platform to hear us talk about polling and why polling in the UK is so challenging. We've done a little bit of comparison to see which pollsters have done the best. And the gold medal for a pollster goes to Ipsos Mori, who uh, coincidentally run the exit poll for the UK as well, closely followed by Opinium in their both in their final poll were just 025 average percentage points away from the actual final result, which was recorded on Thursday, the 12th of December, closely followed by then Number Cruncher Politics, which again is Matt Singh's friend of the pod, as they say, who got 0.51% average error. Now, when it comes to polling averages, Europolex obviously have one. We've done some comparison with a couple of the other main ones, and we came closely behind the Financial Times polling average, but ahead of Britain Alex polling average. Britain Alex are a, a polling aggregator, a lot like Europe Alex, just but exclusively for the UK. We were a 0.5% average error, which is pretty good, I think. I'm pretty proud of us. Though I say that, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. So I'm I'm proud of who we're, <laughs> proud of Alex and the team who looked after looking after that. Um, yeah, after Boris Johnson, I think the, the British polling industry can definitely be considered one of the great victors of this election after a couple of not quite so good records in the last two British general elections. So they got it, for the most part, a couple of polls were off from polling companies, but for the most part, they got they got it pretty accurate. Yeah, it's definitely a avoid or ignore polling at your own peril from now on in the UK, I think. So what other things would you say are the major impacts backpacks of this election then? On perhaps, let's start with the Conservatives. What does this mean for the Conservative Party, Matthew? So it means that they're uh, obviously going to be in power for the next five years. Um, this is, I mean, by by the size of majorities in um, British electoral history, this isn't the largest majority or, or near the largest majority parties have won. Um, but this is still the most seats the Conservatives have won since 1987 and the highest share of the vote they've had since 1979, both um, during the days of Margaret Thatcher. And it means that during these massive changes that are going to come towards Britain's relationship with the European Union, its economic and trading model, the Conservatives, and especially Boris Johnson, who is in this indisputed position of leadership now, are going to have essentially control over the reshaping of, of Britain for the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how this uh, parliament is going to play out, because obviously 
Previously, Theresa May, as prime minister, suffered a lot of internal challenges. And Boris Johnson then suffered more internal challenges just from dissenters on the sort of more remain side of his party and more leave side of his party throughout his time as tenure as prime minister before he called this election. However, he benefited from expelling a significant number of the sort of pro-Remain voices within his party from the party who those of who did stand for re-election, whether for the Liberal Democrats or for uh, as independents, all lost. None of them won. None of them returned to parliament this time. And there are there are 109 new conservative MPs entering parliament. 109. So that's that is almost a third of their entire delegation to parliament. So it's a pretty untested formula for what they're going to be like, what kind of MPs they're going to be like, and how difficult they're going to be for Boris Johnson. Yeah. I mean, yeah, another interesting another interesting aspect of this is that the Conservative manifesto was relatively light on details. So if Boris Johnson does try to use this majority to push through much more substantial changes in whichever area he chooses to, that could possibly pose some problems. If it's, it's something that you know a lot of the MPs did either didn't feel they'd signed up towards or you know hadn't adequately been examined in the general election, for instance. So what about Labour? They obviously didn't have a very good night. No, no, um, yeah, that, that, that's one way of putting it. Um, <laughs> it was in terms of seats, not not the popular vote, but in terms of seats, this was Labour's worst result since 1935. And yeah, Labour, a lot of their um, long-held Labour seats just fell to the Conservatives during the election uh, night. Um, and a, a popular refrain that we were hearing during the night is, oh, this is a seat that's been held by Labour since 1935, since 1950, and, you know, it's fallen now. Uh, especially in the north of England, in a lot of these seats that, that did vote for Brexit, that there were some quite significant swings towards the Conservative Party. But what, what I find, um, or what I'm watching within the Labour Party is there's different narratives coming out about the reason for this defeat, which perhaps predictably uh, are going along the, um, the kind of partisan lines within the Labour Party. So you're hearing a lot of the the Corbynites or the, the left or pro-Corbyn faction of the party blaming this on their Brexit position of supporting a second referendum, whereas the, the group that are called Corbyn sceptics or perhaps the moderates or, or centrists, they're pinning the blame entirely on Corbyn and his leadership team, which I, I think, although it's, it's very complicated and there, there are lots of different reasons, um, there have been a couple of polls out since the election where uh, asking people why they didn't vote Labour or why they think Labour lost. And um, the leadership has come out on top in those polls as, as the main factor. How do you think that will play out then in the coming leadership election as Corbyn has said that he won't fight another general election as leader of the party? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, to which I, I don't really know the answer yet. We're going to have to wait. But you're, you're seeing a list of names of candidates announcing. One interesting uh, feature of which actually tying perhaps to, to the trend you're talking about with Finland earlier is that almost all the candidates that have announced so far are women, because Labour is the only major party to have had a, a woman lead the party yet. So that's something to look out for. But in terms of these factional lines, which will I would imagine, dominate the race to become Labour's next leader. Uh, you're seeing some of the kind of left-wing Corbyn figures backing um, an MP called Rebecca Long-Bailey to be the, what you might call, continuity Corbyn candidate. Uh, and then another figure whose, whose name I'm hearing a lot is Lisa Nandy, who might emerge as this more kind of soft left, as it's described, a more, more kind of centre-left figure that might emerge in opposition to that. 
But it's going to be a very interesting race to watch for sure that we can expect, I think, in the early part of next year. And Lim Dems, their, their leader, Joe Swinson, lost her seat. Well, it was also a terrible night for them. What, what do you say about that? What's going to happen? That, um, that result in her constituency of East Dumbartonshire in Scotland was probably the most dramatic single result of the night. The, as part of the, the Scottish National Party's sweep of Scotland, she, she lost her seat by, it was just about 100 votes. It was extremely close. Yeah. But in uh, a terrible night for Lib Dems, that, that was, of course, the, the peak of it. So we're going to be seeing a leadership election for them as well, which is in the very early stages. I don't think, as far as I'm aware, anybody has announced yet. A couple of names that you might see are Ed Davey, who, of course, was defeated by Joe Swinson just a few months ago when, when she was elected leader. And then another name might be Leila Moran, and I think one of the cleavages in this election might be the Liberal Democrats' record of being in coalition with the Conservative Party between 2010 and 2015, and whether the party wants to pick someone that served in that coalition, as Joe Swinson had, and as I think harmed her in the election, or whether they want to get a fresh new face, which Leila Moran would be, who didn't serve in the in the coalition and might be seen to be untainted by that the legacy of, of that their unpopular involvement in that government. Let's just quickly have a look at the impacts on the regions, nations of the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales. Any headlines that jump out to you there, Matthew? So the, the greatest headline's got to be the SNP's, the Scottish National Party's sweep of Scotland. Um, they didn't quite reach their incredible landslide performance in 2015, but they recovered to 48 out of Scotland's 59 seats, which if you imagine that kind of majority on the UK level, that would be a completely incredibly unprecedented you know sweep of the seats and they went back up to 45 percent so the big question there is going to be does this now mean that a second independence referendum for scotland is inevitable given that the scottish national party ran on a very clear platform calling for a second independence referendum and also given i think the result in the rest of the uk which is confirming or strengthening some of the arguments that the snp have had about you know, Scotland's voice being unrepresented in the UK and so on. And I think we're we, we're going to prepare for some interesting battles going ahead as to whether a second in re- independence referendum can happen. And just to go very quickly through the other ones, um, Northern Ireland was interesting in that for the first time, the, the, the parties that support the union with the United Kingdom didn't win a majority. So that is, is part of a wider trend you've been seeing in politics in Northern Ireland recently. Uh, and then in Wales, Wales did see some seats, especially in the north of Wales, fall towards fall from Labour to the Conservatives. Um, but what was quite interesting there was that in the Welsh valleys, which are these former mining industrial areas in the south of Wales, uh, many of which did vote for Brexit, Labour, Labour's vote held up there um, in contrast to parts of England. So I think that, that was an interesting trend worth noting. Definitely something worth keeping an eye on. Matthew, thank you so much for coming in and checking to us again. It's been a really fascinating election and I hope you've recovered from the all-night stint you did on the live blog. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. So yes, as we said, the UK election was not the only electoral event and let's talk a little bit more about the Samaranese election. Well, I say, let's talk. I hear you've been doing an interview, Gabriel. I have with the lovely Fabio Ricardo Colombo. So yes, earlier this month, Europolex, we covered the general election in San Marino, which I would say might have been one of the most underreported elections in Europe this year. 
largely overshadowed by the elections in the UK, at least in Western Europe, and there was also the presidential in Romania. But we really wanted this episode to talk about this election in order to give all of you some context about San Marino, its politics, and what this general election has meant. Sort of a crash course in the party politics of San Marino. And to do that with me is Fabio Ricardo Colombo. Hello. Hello. Hello, that's all. How, how are you, Fabio? <laughs> I'm fine, thanks. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm happy to have you here and to ask you all these questions about San Marino, which is one of Europe's smallest countries. It's sort of encapsulated by Italy. And I thought just for a start, all that I know with my limited knowledge is that San Marino became a democracy after World War II, after being sort of a fascist dictatorship. Yes. So I thought if you could just give us a quick sort of rundown of, I guess, the past half century of Samarese politics in terms of what parties have dominated, what have the governments been like, etc. Because I assume most of us have no clue. Okay. Um, after the second global war, uh, the party system of San Marino has got many aspects that are similar to Italian uh, party system. Okay. Um, in the 1943, there was the first election without fascism, but uh, there was only one party, okay. uh, the party that liberates San Marino. Okay. And um, in 1945, there was uh, the uh, first election with two parties. One of the parties was the left bloc that um, was composed from socialists and communists that worked to uh, liberate San Marino from fascism. And uh, like in Italy, for many years, we can see in San Marino a block of left, socialist and communist that separate from the block, and uh, the main actor of the party system that was the Christian Democratic Party. Uh-huh. When uh, in Italy in 1992, there was the most big process for corruption to Italy's party system, and uh, many, many parties dies. But in San Marino, only the communist one dies. And the other parties are also today... Um, main actor of the politics of San Marino. Okay, cool. So, yeah, that's very interesting. And in terms of the previous election ahead of this one that we're about to talk about in 2019, took place in 2016. Uh, So can you give us an overview of what's happened in these three years? What's the government been? And have there been any major events that have shaped uh, the election campaign this December? Okay, well, I say that in 2016, uh, there was a particular election because uh, the majority went to a coalition of parties that make war to traditional party. Most people call that government governance of change, like uh, the, the Italy government uh, with five-star movements and uh, league, but that government was uh, supported by left also. Okay. We must say also that uh, in San Marino, since uh, 1945, there wasn't a, a right party. All, uh, only in um, 2000 years, there was uh, some small uh, right party, but never we have can see in San Marino a uh, right party. Okay, that's very, that's very interesting. Do you know why that is? Why there hasn't been a big right-wing party in San Marino? I think that we must say that San Marino is near an uh, important region of uh, Italy, Emilia-Romagna, the region of Bologna, that is an historical red region. In that region, never, never win uh, the, the right. And uh, that region will, uh, will go on vote 
on January and uh, people in Italy are uh, uh, very interesting to, to see that because if uh, the right uh, Salvini win that uh, regional election, our government can govern in the, in the next month so we can go and vote. Oh, wow. So potentially a lot is changing in the landscape there then. But so <laughs> Yes. So Fabio, tell me just at a very top level about the legislative system in San Marino. Okay. Legislative power is a prerogative of Grand and General Council that is made up of uh, 60 members. Uh, is a unicameral system and this, uh, it's, elect- it's uh, elected by a um, proportional system, semi-proportional system. Uh, so, sort of going into this election in 2019, I know from what I've read and the research I've done that there's been a change in electoral law. And since we all love electoral law at Europe Elects, would you just mind giving us a brief explanation about how electoral law has changed ahead of this election and what that's meant for the process? Okay, in, uh, the, um, in San Marino, they vote for a referendum on June of this year. And... Um, there are uh, three new points in the electoral system. The one is the uh, quorum. The quorum now is uh, at 5%. Before it was at 3 and 5%. The okay. second point is uh, that the party must declare the possible alliance before the vote, and there are binding declaration. And the first ah. and most important point is the negotiation phase, that is uh, collocated between the first and the second round of the vote. So when they vote for the first round, the parliament, the chamber are composing. And uh, before vote for the second round, the first party must can try to make a govern in 15 days. And if it can make a majority, uh, the second party uh, must try to make a govern. So... How, how about you tell us a bit about the results of this election that took place uh, earlier this month? Uh, what party came out winning and uh, what's happened? Will there be a second round? So um, we can say that uh, this election was uh, an early general election. So the majority that has governed in the um, past year uh, was composed by parties that hate the traditional party. In this election, traditional party has got the majority, not the majority for make a government, but the first party is uh, the Christian Democratic Party. The coalition that has governed in the past year has got the 16%. The okay. 16% and 10 seats. So how, how come how come the sort of old mainstream party has, has grown so much? Is, the, is there an event or an issue that has come up? I think that uh, is a consequence of uh, the uh, electoral campaign very strong. In this campaign, never people talk about points of program, but uh, only personal attack and a strong declaration. Now we are in the, the first phase of negotiation and the Democratic Party, the Christian Democratic Party, must try to make a, a government. And now um, I think that in that tower are uh, closing a, a new government composed by all the party that was at the opposition of uh, the past 10. Uh, so that's the Christian Democratic Party. And what are the other ones that will be in the new government? 
Okay, with the uh, Christian Democratic Party, there are also in the coalition uh, Socialist Party, traditional left party, and also a new uh, party composed by left people uh, with another similar to Five Star Movements, but not uh, anti-system, also like and uh, other issues uh, of new left party. Okay, interesting. Um... So, if all goes as you're reporting, there will be a new government in San Marino by, by Christmas. I, I think that, yes. In that hour, uh, they are de- debating the uh, Democratic Party, Christian Democratic Party, as debating with uh, other parties in uh, San Marino, and people think that, that uh, in tomorrow uh, can be a, a governor in San Marino. Well, that's... One less election for us to cover, but that's great for the stability of San Marino, I guess. And one final question from us. Uh, as you well know, what we at Europe Alex do is we report on a lot of opinion polls. So obviously San Marino is a very small country, both in terms of area and not least population. So is there any opinion polling in San Marino? That's an interesting question. I, I tried to find it, but... Uh... In the past election, in 2016, there was was not very precise uh, polls, but uh, there was free polls. Now, the only polls uh, that was being uh, are uh, public, only for the parties. Interesting. Do you have any idea if they were at all accurate? I don't know. The only things that parties give to the newspaper, that is uh, a new deal of uh, San Marino, that the party that have government have governed in the past year can uh, got the, the majority of chamber. Only that. Well, thank you, Fabio, for giving us all this context about San Marino and the thank recent uh, general election. Uh, appreciate you very much, and uh, we'll make sure to have you back on if anything exciting happens. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Europe Alex podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between episodes. And make sure you subscribe and review this podcast as well to keep us around for more. You can find us at europealex.eu and at europealex across social media. With the exception of Instagram, where you can find us at Europe underscore Alex. We'll be back with more elections, EU shifts, polling data, and so much more in 2020. See you next time and happy holidays if you're celebrating this winter. Bye. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peña Rios and Leon Lizana. The music was by Jose Alvarado and it was hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. We are currently looking for podcast sponsors, so get in touch via our website if you'd like to advertise with us. Sweet. <laughs>